Hello everyone, it's James Lindsay. This is a New Discourses podcast. And I want to take a little break from our critical education theory series, our critical pedagogy, if you want, series, to give you just kind of a very broad picture that makes something that seems very complicated very simple. And so a lot of you know I've just published a book called Race Marxism. I make the case that critical race theory is race Marxism. I did a couple of podcasts about the book and about this topic. One of the bo- the the podcast is about the book specifically. Another um, of the podcast is to kind of go de- deliberately into the Marxism explanation and make it kind of straightforward and clear. For those of you who are eagerly awaiting the audiobook, you'll find that podcast included as an appendix to the audio recording, so that should be exciting for you. What I want to do today is I want to kind of take that same argument, so you're going to hear it again, present it slightly differently, and kind of expand for you about intersectionality and critical pedagogy and kind of everything, even kind of postmodern Marxism, like we would see maybe from Louis Althusser and uh, Jacques Derrida, who worked with him, and uh, Michel Foucault, who was his doctoral student. And so that's really kind of where postmodernism comes from, in that French intellectual tradition, which was, you guessed it, Marxist. Um, Though post-Marxist, though giving up on Marxism. But that's beside the point. I don't want to make this long or complicated, partly because I forgot to charge my laptop and I don't know how long I have to do this, partly because it doesn't need to be. So let's just kind of dive in. I want to summarize Marxism for you very simply. Everybody gets bogged down in this economic theory crap. Everybody gets bogged down in all of the thousands of pages of detail. You don't need to be bogged down in any of that. Marxism is quite simple. Marx believed, in essence, or argued at least in essence, in his so-called Communist Confession of Faith, which later got called the Communist Manifesto, that there is a special kind of property in existence. For Marx, it was called capital. What capital does is it's a special kind of property that can produce more property. You can invest your capital and you have more capital. You can put your capital to use and your capital grows. You can use capital to produce more capital. So it's a special kind of property that produces more property. Okay? So there's this special kind of property that allows people to have access to material wealth is what that boils down to. You generate wealth through this process. And Marx believed this process was inherently exploitative because somebody owns the capital, keeps other people out of the capital, then has them work as laborers through their capital to produce more capital for themselves. And so the process is actually an exploitative relationship. That exploitative relationship is one where you extract the surplus value from labor and concentrate it yourself and turn it into property that, again, can produce more property, called capital. This creates two kind of fundamental problems or contradictions for Marx. The first of these is that this is not a sustainable process. So this is why you see the incessant focus on sustainability today uh, in the newest Marxist bid for power sustainability, as I did in another podcast that you should definitely go listen to and think through, is the tyranny of the 21st century. It is the Marxism of the 21st century. It is resolving the problem of the unlimited growth of capital. It is, in effect, kind of a recreation of the Malthusian argument about 
uh, population growth growing faster than production capacity, and therefore you're going to have a collapse eventually unless you control and limit and shrink the population, which is a nightmare, which is also part of the current tyranny because of sustainability, because we have unsustainable populations. But in this case, it's that capital itself is going to become, uh, the capital itself can't continue to grow forever. And so there's an inherent contradiction between the idea of a piece of property, capital, that can produce more property, but that can't go on forever. And that creates this kind of contradiction that Marx tries to resolve dialectically by saying that capital itself is inherently contradictory. We're getting off of the, the simple target, though, so I don't want to go deeper into that. The second big contradiction is that there is a contradiction, as I've already explained for Marx, and this is the key contradiction of Marxism, or that Marxism fixates on. The, the contradiction is between the means of production and the forces of production. So capital produces the means of production, but the forces of production are the laborers who use the capital to have their surplus value uh, stolen from them and then be alienated from the process of their own work, etc. So all I really need you to understand is that for Marx, there's a special kind of private property called capital. The existence of private property enables capital. If you have your own property and can do whatever you want with it, you can also turn it into capital. In other words, uh, property that you risk in order to try to obtain more capital or more property. Or in the words of Goldman Sachs, you can take your pile of money and try to turn it into a bigger pile of money if you want. Okay, so the, for Marxism, back to the nutshell, there's a special kind of property. For him, it's called capital. Certain people have access to this special kind of property. Then they justify why they get access to this special kind of property and why other people don't. Why does the laborer that's being exploited not have his own capital? Well, he didn't work as hard. He didn't take the risk. He didn't invest in it. And this broad ideology in service of justifying the special kind of property is called an ideology. It's called capitalism in this case. So you create a big mythology that justifies why you get to have access to the special property and other people don't. Now, this is what sets up the dynamic, the structure of the social relations in society. So now you have an upper class of people, the capitalists, who put out, or the bourgeoisie actually, who put out a ideology called capitalism that justifies why they have access to special property called capital that nobody else gets to have, and that why that, that ideology also explains why the people on the bottom the infrastructure of society have to, or the base of society, are going to be in the position they are in, in the, so they're in the productive capacity, whereas um, the capitalists control the means. And so there's an inherent contradiction between the means and production of uh, society. So this is capitalism, in, or sorry, Marxism in a nutshell. There's a special kind of property. There's an upper class that has access to it. There's a lower class that is excluded from it. The upper class is organizes society in what Marx called a superstructural way. The lower class, or the base, that does all the productive work with their hammer and their sickle is known as the infrastructure. These are put into a dynamic relationship that is mediated by the mythology created by the people in the superstructure 
which is meant to justify why they get to have access to capital, why the others don't, why they get to keep having access to capital, but it's also a mythology, so it's like a religion. It's a uh, fake story they tell themselves and that they believe, and because they believe it, they don't even realize that it's fake. And so what you have then is that the infrastructure being embedded in this unfair, exploitative, and alienating structure can become awakened to the true nature of the ideology and thus can either inform people in that upper class of what they're actually doing beyond their ability to see it because they're willfully ignorant of it, or if they become awakened, they can just amass together in solidarity and uh, create the necessary conditions, a large enough workers' movement to overthrow the system and take control of the means of production for themselves. So, again, let me just back up and say it very simple. There's a special kind of property called capital. The bourgeoisie has given themselves access to it. They've created an ideology called capitalism that justifies why they get it and other people don't. This sets up a structure of society. That structure of society is determinant on how you are. If you're in the bourgeoisie, you think in terms of why you are, why you deserve to be there. If you're in the proletariat, actually the working class, you, you are uh, brainwashed into believing that's, you, you belong there. That's why he calls religion the, the sigh of the oppressed people and the opium of the masses, is because the masses are given the ideology and taught to believe, to accept, kind of fatalistically, their lot in life. The working class can then be awakened to the nature of this class antagonism by having it revealed to them. Once that's revealed to them, they can engage in a revolutionary class struggle and eventually seize the means of production, establish a workers' uh, state, which enshrines the Marxist ideology. That's called socialism for Marx, where all of the, uh, the, the means of production are controlled by the party, and they are, the, the products are redistributed more equitably throughout society. And in the long run, this becomes spontaneous and becomes communism. That's, that's Marxism in a nutshell key pieces, special kind of property, upper class has access, lower class is excluded. That creates a dialectical dynamic that structures all of society. Who you are, what you can think, and your character are determined by your position in that structure and how it shapes your thought. That's called material determinism in Marxism. And the goal of Marxism is to awaken a consciousness that brings you aware of the class antagonism and the so-called true nature of material reality as such. Okay, so that's a 10-minute summary of Marxism. So now we turn, turn to critical race theory. Because what I want to convince you of in this episode of the podcast is that all of the various identity Marxist threads that you're aware of under the broad name of intersectionality do exactly the same thing. They are all Marxism. Critical race theory is race Marxism. Gender theory is gender Marxism. Marxist feminism is sex Marxism. Queer theory is sex and sexuality Marxism, especially sexuality Marxism, but some of both. Also gender and whatever. Fat studies is fat Marxism. Disability studies is disability Marxism. Critical pedagogy is education Marxism. Structural post, or post-structural postmodernism is language Marxism. Again and again and again and again and again. It's the same damn thing. So I get this a lot. People tell me, 
This is a new ideology. It's a successor ideology. It's a completely new way of thinking. No, it isn't. It's Marxism retooled to fit into freaking other domains in economics. And so it looks weird and it looks new. It's exactly the same. So let's do critical race theory. There are certain people that are white that constructed the concept of race so that they could give themselves access to society that other people don't get. That's the definition of race in critical race theory. I can actually read you the definition of race in critical race theory if you give me a second to pull it up, and you will see this is exactly the definition of critical race theory that they use. And I'm loading this up from the, the Brandeis University diversity glossary that they have, their social justice terms. Race, they tell us, is a misleading and deceptively appealing classification of human beings created by white people originally from Europe, which assigns human worth and social status using the white racial identity as the archetype of humanity for the purpose of creating and maintaining privilege, power, and systems of oppression. So you have people called white people originally from Europe who created a concept called race. They also, in this Action created a special kind of property called whiteness. Cheryl Harris in 1993 wrote a paper called Whiteness as Property, where she characterizes whiteness as a form of bourgeois property. This harkens back then to the Communist Manifesto that Marx wrote, where he said communism can be uh, explained in a single sentence or summarized in a single sentence the abolition of private property or bourgeois property. So, white people constructed the concept of race in order to hold themselves up as the archetype so that they could perpetuate dominance. In other words, so they could give themselves access to a special form of property named whiteness. Whiteness as property is a key pillar of critical race theory. So there's a special kind of property called whiteness. White people constructed an entire racial ideology that's enforced by something called white supremacy that justifies why they get access to it and nobody else does. The racial underclass is called people of color. Some of them have racial consciousness. Some of them don't. Many of them are acting white. Many of them have false consciousness. They're trapped in a double consciousness of their identity, racial identity, because of the fact that race is being imposed upon them by the white superstructure. So you have a white superstructure in relationship with a people of color infrastructure that are in a dialectical relationship. The dialectical relationship produces a structure of society that is inherently racist. That inherent racist structure of society is called structural racism or systemic racism. It is put into play by an ideology called and enforced by an ideology called white supremacy. The point of critical race theory, then, is to abolish whiteness, which is why you see Robin DiAngelo say there's no such thing as a positive white identity and that she strives to be less white. That's why you see her th say that's in White Fragility near the end. She, that's, she also says there that white people, uh, good white liberals, I should say, do the most daily damage to people of color because they stop doing their racial work. In other words, they land themselves in a position where they believe that they are uh, exempt from this circuit this problem. In other words, they become the petty bourgeoisie. And so this is just a recreation of Marxism. And what's the idea? Well, there's this concept of anti-racism. When you awaken your racial consciousness, whether you are white, whether you're a person of color, when you awaken to a racial class consciousness, you can become an anti-racist. And anti-racist is an ongoing process of self-reflection, self-critique, and social activism. That's what Robin DiAngelo tells us. 
anti-racism is uh, the attempt, according to Ibram Kendi, to make sure that all ideas and policy, meaning policy in every regard, individual policy for yourself, norms in society, policies between friends or in groups, policies in institutions, formal and informal, policies at state, local, and federal levels, corporate policy, everything that could possibly called, be called a policy has to be made so that it produces racial equity, not racial inequity. That's anti-racism to Ibram Kendi, which means that you're having people who are awakened with their class consciousness, seizing the means of production of society, and they are going to enforce a state of equitable outcomes, namely racial equity, which is tantamount to socialism, that when it becomes spontaneous will become racial justice in the long term. It's just race communism. It is literally race Marxism recreated. And this isn't new. You can read race Marxism, you can listen to the other podcast, whatever you want to do, and you'll hear this argument and more. So critical race theory is race Marxism. Critical race theory can be summarized in a single sentence, the abolition of whiteness. Whiteness is a special form of property. The racial bourgeoisie, namely whites and the white adjacent people and the people who act white, give themselves access to this. They close off access to everybody else. An intrinsic property of whiteness is said to be anti-blackness in critical race theory. They close everybody else off to this. They impose race upon the society. And so in doing that, they create an ideology called white supremacy to justify why they're doing it. And that structures society through systemic racism, which is a kind of racism where even if nobody's racist and no institution is racist, the outcomes come out racist because the structure of society itself is racist. And the structure of society itself is the dialectical interplay between the racial superstructure and the racial infrastructure. A further belief in Marxism, by the way, is that the infrastructure cannot directly influence society. Only the superstructure has that power. So the white people become the setters of society in critical race theory. The bourgeoisie become the setters of society in Marxism. And the infrastructure is supposed to become awakened and get class conscious and to agitate class consciousness in parts of the bourgeoisie so they'll become a revolutionary vanguard so that they can actually influence the change and change the course of society to unmake that system. That's Marxism. So critical race theory is race Marxism. It's a very simple argument. Now let's go further. Marxist feminism. There's a special kind of property called being male. It's enforced by, it creates a structure of society, I should say, called patriarchy that's enforced by an ideology called misogyny. It exists to keep men in the upper echelon of society and to keep women in the lower echelon of society, to exclude them from the pro, uh, privileges and power given to people in the racial, or the, sorry, the sexual now upper class. And that sex upper class is male, and the sex lower class is female. Do you see how this just plays out exactly the same? And what do the feminists say that they're raising? Feminist consciousness. And what is feminist consciousness? An awareness that society is structured this way. This is the same thing. Marxist feminism, or really feminism kind of overall, except when it's the very liberal feminism that says that you do believe in the uh, legal equality and social equality of the sexes, and therefore, you know, you can lead into things that the Marxist feminists hate, like choice feminism, like a woman making her own choices for herself counts as feminism. You have a special kind of property, maleness, that, is, uh, that excludes females 
from society, uh, from that, that special category. It creates a structure of society called patriarchy. Patriarchy is uh, maintained by an ideology of male dominance and misogyny, blah, 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 blah. And the dialectical interplay between the two, because of the imposition of patriarchy upon women and gender and sex roles upon women, causes them to be able to awaken to their consciousness and thus agitate, get some male feminist allies, and overthrow society. Thing same. It's all about just figuring out what the special kind of property is that they identify. Okay, so now we go a little further into the gender theory and queer theory department. Queer theory is a war upon the normal. The definition of queer is identity without an essence, or that which resists being normalized. So the special kind of property in queer theory, or gender theory broadly, which by the way came out of this feminism, to separate sex roles, feminists started to argue that gender is where the roles really lie. If you're a woman, you're supposed to act womanly, and so sex roles are assigned, but they're attached to what it means to be feminism, feminine, feminine, which is a gender assignment, and so gender is socially constructed in order to keep women down. The gender construction itself, by the way, is part of the ideology of patriarchy. Men are supposed to be this way, women are supposed to be that way. That's the ideology. Men deserve society because of this. Women need to stay in the home because of that. That's the ideology. So the social construction of gender goes even further in queer theory, and it becomes a social construction of sex, gender, sexuality, and virtually everything else, including mental health status and so on, fat status and ability status as well. But we'll get to those. And so what we now have with queer theory, and this is, like I said, this is very simple. There's a special kind of property called being normal. Normalcy, fitting within the broad norms of society how you should dress, how you should act, what it means to act as a man or a woman, what genders are, that there are two, not many, not hundreds, that men tend to be attracted to women, that men tend to identify as male, that women tend to identify as female and tend to be attracted to men. This creates a broad, sweeping ideology that justifies why some people are normal and get full access to society and others are considered abnormal and are excluded from full access to society, often by being labeled as mentally ill, that's called cis-heteronormativity, and sometimes it's cis-heteropatriarchy if they want to add in the feminism that they're now getting away from, because feminism intrinsically maintains a sex binary, which is a problem. Which, by the way, is where we saw with Yuri Bezdemov saying that he was the, the stupid, useful idiot leftists are going to get put against the wall and shot as soon as the revolution proceeds past them because they're no longer useful, but are in fact dangerous. This is why you see the queer, trans, etc. ideology throwing women under the bus. This is why Leah Thomas is being upheld as, as this massive success story while she just, he did, destroys women's sports. This is why uh, we have to put pronouns on everything. This is why. And it's too late. The feminists can't get it back. They went into social constructivism, and they don't have a tool to get it back. They tried to base their argument on something that is a slippery slope, which is social constructivism. If they try to say social constructions end at gender and don't extend to sex, like Judith Butler suggested that they do, then they're trying to uphold the status quo of a sex binary, and they're conservative, in fact, counter-revolutionary. And so now the revolution is turned upon them, and women more broadly, and has lined them up against the ideological wall and shot them. And that's why feminism doesn't matter anymore, because queer theory took it over. So there's this property called normalcy, being normal. 
It creates a superstructure of the normal in society, the acceptable. And then there's the unacceptable abnormal. That's the infrastructure. They're in dialectical interplay. This causes trauma and harm and all of these things. And it's put together by an ideology of cis-heteronormativity that it is normal, thus correct, because there's a pun on statistical normalcy versus uh, moral normalcy being played here, that it is normal, thus correct, to be cisgender, as they say, which means that if you're a man, you think you're a man. If you're a woman, you think you're a woman. And then to be heterosexual, because statistically speaking, the very large proportion of people fall into both of those categories. And so you have the exact same Marxist dynamic, and the goal is that the abnormal will now seize the means of the production of normalcy. This is why you hear Douglas Murray talking about homonormativity being the goal, to make homosexuality normal and heterosexuality abnormal, to make trans normal and cis, if you will, because that is not a real thing, uh, abnormal, because they're going to seize the means of the production of normalcy and overturn it and force an equitable situation where the abnormal is the normal until that becomes what everybody accepts, at which point we'll finally have sex, gender, and sexual justice. LGBTQ plus or whatever agenda you want to call this. All right. So now we have queer theory is sex, gender, and sexuality, Marxism. That's all it is. That's all it is. The exact same ideology reproduced in a different domain. Fat studies. There are thin people, fit people. They have access to being thin and fit and conventionally attractive by certain standards. That's a special kind of property. They create a ideology of fat phobia. Oh, sorry, of, of thin normativity that's enforced by fat phobia, in order to create a fat phobic, thin normative structure to society that excludes fat people from be, being considered normal. They set themselves up as the dialectical other, and the same thing repeats. The exact same thing repeats. So the thin people create an ideology that it's better to be thin and fit and healthy. They call that healthism. They literally call that healthism, that it's better to be healthy than not, and that health has anything to do with who you are as a person. And they create this whole ideological dynamic that excludes fat people from full participation in society, creates them as an underclass, etc. Same. Disability studies. There is a special kind of property called ability. The disabled are excluded by an ideology called ableism and disabilism from access to that ability status property. There's an ideology there, like I said, ableism and disabilism, that does the damage, that does the thing, that structures society so that the able have special access and the disabled don't. Whole thing all over again. So the disabled are supposed to become centered, normal. Taken, the goal is to take whatever is the lower class out of the margin and move it to the center from which it can see the entire perspective of society. And that's a, a direct paraphrasing of George Lukács explaining the point of Marxism. To bring the margin to the center. It's a direct paraphrasing of Paulo Freire. Bring the margin to the center from wh who basically just seems to have just ripped off George Lukács to, so that from wh which point they can see the entirety of society. So we're going to center disable 
and we're going to reorder and restructure society such that it no longer disables people because it is the society created in the ideology of ableism that actually causes the disability, not, say, not being able to use your legs. Ability Marxism. It's exactly the same thing. Now we turn to Paulo Freire since I mentioned him. We could do more identity politics. doesn't matter. We get the point. All you have to do is figure out what the special kind of property is, and then they have some name for the idea for for the for that kind of property, and then they have like ability or like uh, whiteness or whatever. And then they say certain people have access to it, and those people have created an ideology where they believe it's normal that they and acceptable and correct and right and justified that they get access to it, and everybody else doesn't. And so the goal is to awaken a consciousness of that fact, and then flip the entire system over. That's it. Why? To create equitable outcomes that are first enforced, socialism or equity, and then that becomes spontaneous, communism or justice. Okay, now Paulo Freire. Paulo Freire, this is where it gets more abstract and subtle. Paulo Freire is the education theorist uh, upon whom all of North American education is now based. He's most famous for his book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which if you've had any contact with a school of education, you are familiar with. In fact, you probably had to do something with it. That book has been, it's the third most highly cited book in the social sciences and humanities. Um, it is an incredibly influential book. It is the ur text basically of critical pedagogy, and it is the book at the center of every college of education in North America, and has been probably since about 1985 when this other book, The Politics of Education, launched him into the American scene. Paulo Freire, this is a little more subtle. Paulo Freire sets up a special... Paulo Freire was interested, according to his own dictates, in adult literacy education of peasants in South America, particularly, but not exclusively, in the countries of Brazil, Chile, and Argentina. He was actually uh, exiled from Brazil for being a problem, and so he went to Chile and Argentina and fucked them up too. That's the long and short of that. And so... uh, For him, there's a special kind of property called literacy, which means being educated in the existing system, which means being educated as the existing system sees education, which means actually being educated in a way that makes you competent within the existing, especially economic and social structure. You've been groomed to fit in with the existing society and to be productive within it. But Marxists think the entire existing society is the problem and needs to be overthrown. So being educated or being literate, which includes political literacy, either in the existing system or, for Freire, of the oppressive nature of the existing system. Literacy becomes, educated becomes, meaning educated as like, he would say it's false education, education within the existing system so you can be productive within it rather than overthrowing it. Educated or literate becomes a form of special property. Only certain people have access to it. They're the people who give themselves access to it. They defined what it means to be educated. They defined what it means to be literate. They defined what it means to fit into society. And everybody else, the peasants, whoever, the illiterate, are excluded from it. This sets up an antagonism, a class antagonism between the literate and illiterate. There is a class struggle across that, and you can awaken a class consciousness with regard to where you stand in that hierarchy. The point is to seize the means of production, see not no longer teachers and students, but rather educators and learners, which are very different because they're subjects that are working together, 
to understand the political literacy that they're supposed to be finding through the Marxist way, and to create equitable outcomes in terms of what literacy confers within society. You gain a political literacy so that you can have equitable outcomes in terms of what literary literacy provides. So the peasants are already actually extremely literate in the conditions of their life. They just don't realize it. And the point of adult literacy education should be to awaken their awareness of their literacy, of their oppression. It has nothing to do with reading and writing. And this is, of course, why in the schools, under things like culturally responsive education, which reproduce it in the educational sphere, or sorry, yeah, reproduce it in the identity Marxist uh, paradigm, I should say, uh, throughout all of education, the focus is on looking at culturally generative and politically re uh, relevant ideas rather than actually succeeding in teaching your kids to read and write. It's to teach them to care more about their feelings and their, their, their social experience and to engage in social and emotional learning where social worker and educator are fused into kind of one job, which is exactly what Paulo Freire calls for in the fifth chapter of the politics of education that the educator and the social worker are actually very much akin. And so what the goal, because they both awaken political literacy in the underclass. And so what you have now is the very idea of knowledge. The very idea of knowledge has now become put into the dynamic of the same Marxism so that equitable outcomes can be generated until they become spontaneous, at which point you'll have educational justice. The postmoderns did this with language. The idea was that the power dynamics are actually tucked into the discourses, whether discourses are webs of meaning in the way that uh, Jacques Derrida broke down in the post-structuralist tradition, or whether they're the webs of meaning as uh, described as kind of structures of power mediated through languages. Michel Foucault described them, for example, where he said that madness, ex the, the social construction of madness excludes people from full participation in society, and then this is also applied with the social construction of homosexuality as a disease, etc., blah, blah, blah. We see exactly the same thing, but now it's actually the words themselves, and the critical theorists are already playing with this idea by the 60s, the words themselves, the language itself encodes the power dynamics of society. So there's a special kind of property, which is the correct usage of words that allows people who believe that they have the correct understanding, the correct definition, the formal definition of words, to have power over everybody else who has to use words according to their terms and standards, who thus therefore doesn't have a vocabulary to articulate their oppression, because they're excluded from the very vocabulary, the very maps or webs of meaning, the discourses that would allow them to express their oppression. And so all we see here it, well, what we're seeing with postmodernism is that we're going to divorce meaning. We're going to say meaning is infinitely deferred if we're Jacques Derrida. We're going to do a deconstructive process upon the meaning itself, which is a negative dialectic like Adorno laid out and like Jacques Derrida was a big fan of, upon the meaning structures of language. And so what you're going to do is you're going to, as Foucault had it, expand the potentialities of being as expressed through language and discourses. You're going, to exp you're going to obliterate the ideas of the walls of an Overton window. You're going to completely uh, restructure language so that the point of language is that it means what the person who is oppressed says that it means according to their lived experience or lived reality, which, by the way, is what Freire was saying is actually true literacy, is lived experience of lived reality, of oppression. And what you're going to have, then, is a more equitable use of language that's going to, in the end, lead to a linguistic justice. That's a slight 
misappropriation of the term linguistic justice, but nevertheless, it doesn't quite mean exactly that. So what you have is in all of these domains, reproduction of the Marxist theme in more and more domains. So it goes out of economics and it goes into identity, race, sex, gender, sexuality, ability status, fat status, mental health status, on and on and on. You name an identity, do whatever you have to do. But then you have it also going into knowledge, knowledge itself, and language. So the entire structure of society on every level, from who you happen to be, your economic class, and how you think, what you know, and how you communicate, is all now being brought under this mar kind of very totalizing Marxist analysis. All of the dimensions that you could possibly imagine become the system rather than just a structure. The system is the system of structures. And those structures are the structure created by uh, the classism inherent in Marxism, the racism inherent in critical race theory, the uh, normativity inherent in queer theory, the patriarchy and misogyny, the sexism inherent in feminism, and on and on and on. The ableism, the disableism, the fatphobia, everything. And then it's in education, knowledge, language. It's the same exact simple thing reproduced again and again and again. The only creativity is repackaging it by figuring out what the special kind of property is, who the bourgeoisie within that special, who have access to that kind of special property happen to be, who the proletariat who are excluded from it are, what that structural dynamic is that maintains that class antagonism, and thus how you awaken the class consciousness so that you can awaken a revolutionary consciousness to overthrow the system. Same, 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 same. Again and again and again. Now, what's intersectionality? Intersectionality is when you jam it all together. Because as it turns out, as mapping the margins points out from Kimberly Crenshaw, which is really the kind of, not quite the birthplace, but in a sense it's the, it's like, it's not the birthplace. It's where, the, it, it's like where the identity Marxism stuck its flag in the ground or intersectionality stuck its flag in the ground. By the way, identity Marxism is the right name for intersectionality. And so, um, you know, it's like where it came of age or something like that. The idea was floating around. The queer theorists talk about it. The Kamahi River Collective is nodding to it. The black feminists are already working with it. And Kimberly Crenshaw in 91 writes this paper called Mapping the Margins. And what margins is she talking about? At the margins of the black nationalist and black power movement are the black women and black feminists. At the margins of the white, she said, feminist movement are the black women. And so even within these revolutionary movements, you know, these already dialectical movements across all the different factors of identity, including language and knowledge, there are internal dialectics, what Althusser would probably point into the direction of overdetermination, as he called it. And so there are now these internal dynamics. And Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Delgado and Stefanczyk talks about this explicitly. They say, well, we figure out the big picture, and then we have within you know the big racial picture, and then we have you know black feminism, and we have Latinas uh, you know within that, and we have you know on and on and on. Um, and so, and then this paragraph describes how it kind of goes intersectional into all these different domains uh, of further margins, margins within the margins, within the margins, within the margins. And he says, and so the dialectic progresses, but that's the dialectical, not now materialism of Marx, but the dialectical structuralism 
of the structural Marxism that's taken over since uh, the middle of the 20th century that's moved it out into these other domains. And so intersectionality is the idea that you have, say, with black women specifically, or any intersecting identity category, where you have, you have two of them. There's a special kind of property, which is being singly oppressed. And if you're only singly oppressed, you don't know what it's like to be doubly oppressed. And so the, double, the doubly oppressed are pressed to the margins. They become a, uh, a, they become a, a kind of underclass, an infrastructure with a, with a superstructure of people who are singly oppressed. So if you look at the lens of black people or black power or black nationalism as a movement, that's only focusing on a single axis of oppression. So it's got the privilege of only thinking about one axis of oppression. So it marginalizes black women who have two axes of oppression that interact intersectionally. And this creates an uh, ideology that we should focus, for example, on one thing at a time and that we should have solidarity. And so this thing becomes a self-cannibalizing. Solidarity itself becomes, we should be solidar we have solidarity in the black movement is the argument that Kimberly Crenshaw is saying marginalizes black women and black feminism because it won't take up women's issues and women have to shut their mouths so that the black movement overall can succeed. And the same thing with feminism. The feminism has to marginalize black women because it has uh, has bigger women overall women's issues. So there's a special kind of property called only having to worry about one kind of oppression at a time. Or if we go the next layer down in the dialectic, only having to worry about two kinds of oppression at a time or three, or four. And so it just becomes this complete web of kind of, it's like a, it's like a oppression fractal. It's like the same oppression is, is reproduced across multiple domains that are being dialectically synthesized at the, into one big mass. And within each layer, you see the exact same dynamic, which is just the Marxist theory being, a, being applied within a narrower context. So there's contradictions within the contradictions, and there's contradictions within the contradictions within the contradictions, and so on and so forth. But what you're seeing is the exact same operating system being applied to more and more minute problems, more and more specific circumstances. And as it turned out, this created a massive amount of leverage. The reason that this worked, kind of wrap all this up, is because... People who already think that way, just like the poor feminists who've been plowed by the gender and then trans movement, people who think this way have no defense when it gets leveled against them. They have, by adopting this conflict antagonistic ideology-based model of Marx as their understanding of reality, which is a bad misunderstanding of reality, they have no defense when the same accusations leveled against them. So when Kimberly Crenshaw comes and says, feminism is white, and feminism is excluding black people, and feminism is racist, and it reproduces structural racism, and because the parts define the whole and the whole define the parts in Marxism, therefore that is one of the things that reproduces racism in the whole society. When she comes and says that, the feminist movement that's already working in a Marxist paradigm has no defense against it whatsoever. The internal logic, their operating system, is getting hijacked. So it's like a computer virus that's computer virusing itself. And when she goes to the black power movement, to the degree that it's become black Marxist, it has no defense whatsoever against the accusation that it's reproducing sexism, and that's how sexism ends up filtering through the whole society. Oh, we're just supposed to accept sexism now because we have race issues to deal with? No, I don't think so. And so 
movements that have accepted the operating system of Marxism that are described throughout this podcast in one, two, three, four, ten domains, whatever it is, including even knowledge and language, have no defense whatsoever. The name of that ultimately is social constructionism. The idea that social that society itself is the social relations are constructed by the relationship between the infrastructure and the superstructure. The infrastructure are the people that do whatever kind of productive work or that are the uh, noble savages or whatever, uh, you know, highly esteemed, authentic, true thing. And then the superstructure are people who have created some system by which they have a special form of property that allows them to continue to multiply their success while excluding the infrastructure from it creates a social class relation across them, a set of social relations. That social relation is structural. It's throughout the entire structure of society. It's justified by an ideology, which is a broad mythology the entire society accepts. Postmodernists called this meta-narratives, stories about stories, broad, sweeping, general stories about how everything works. And the postmodern condition is a skepticism toward meta-narratives, according to Jean-Francois Lyotard. What you see is that this operating system the this operating system and the goal of awakening that consciousness as a result that operating system has no defense when another angle of attack is brought in against it when the mass line of action of a marxist theory whether race marxism sex marxism gender marxism sexuality marxism um fat marxism whatever when that comes in and attacks one of these other Marxist movements, when the mass line ceases to just attack society but also turns itself back inward or horizontal, it has no defense. And so all it can do is become even more convoluted and eventually intersectional. But lest anybody want to know or want to understand, this is the key. We know what Marxism is. It can be understood. It works in the economic domain. Critical race theory is race Marxism. Feminism, in most regards, the very activist forms, is sex Marxism. Queer theory is sex, gender, and sexuality Marxism. Fat studies is fat Marxism. Disability studies is ability Marxism. Critical pedagogy is knowledge Marxism, or literacy Marxism, or educated Marxism, education Marxism. Postmodern post-structuralism is language Marxism. And all of it crams together into identity Marxism. It's all forged and welded together in identity Marxism. Postmodernism and, and critical education become the glue that holds together all these different identity politics movements under the brand name of intersectionality, which is, like I said, identity Marxism. Identity Marxism is also, uh, when it's fully awakened, woke Woke Marxism, which if you listen to lots of the other podcasts, you can get a good sense of what woke means. And that's the thing we're actually dealing with. But if anybody wants to understand, you can't attack any of these Marxisms with, with, on, on their face just with reason, because you have to understand that they're a complete operating system that's a closed off thing. And so what you need to understand is you are completely justified in understanding that these are all the exact same movement. They're all exactly the same logic. They're all exactly the same thing. They're all exactly Marxism. There's no difference. There's been no change. They are not a new ideology. They're in no way a new ideology. They are exactly the same Marxist ideology. Again, critical race theory is race Marxism. 
That's all it is. It is mar the Marxist operating system applied to the dynamic created by race as these weirdos define it in caricature, just like the way that Marx defined the free market as capitalism in caricature. Feminism, gender studies and queer theory, sex, gender, sexuality, Marxism. You can be totally confident in that. It is just the same thing. Why does, why does it feel so similar to critical race theory? Because it's the same damn thing. It's Marxism. It's not some weird, cool new thing. It's completely the same old crap. It is a communist manifesto rewritten for normalcy. That's all it is. And it's already sacrificed feminism and women on the altar of its all-consuming, poisonous destruction religion. And then we move into these other domains, and it's the same thing reproduced again and again. Where it gets really scary, though, is when you look at critical pedagogy and postmodernism, because postmodernism allows this hap to happen within language and poisons the very ability to speak and to think and to communicate. And then uh, critical education or critical pedagogy turns it into the realm of knowledge. So knowledge itself becomes a form of special property that only certain people have access to. Blah, 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 blah. Thus, you have to decolonize the curriculum. Thus, you have to do all of these crazy things in education. Thus, you have to center things like diversity, equity, and inclusion so that you can bring in these so-called diverse, which means communist perspectives on these issues to uh, rule over everything. So feel totally confident, but you need to understand they're all the same thing. This is not a new ideology. It is a cobbling together of a fractal of one ideology being applied in tons of domains at once and kind of glued together. So, now you can understand. It's all Marxism. It's all just Marxism. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that.